continuing from the book of 2 Corinthians. So we are on 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, all verses 1 to 18. invite you to follow along in your Bible or words also printed on the screen. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have defined power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only on the surface of things. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our action when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to, come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting our works done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the region beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commands himself with approval, but the one whom the Lord commands. Demikianlah sabda Tuhan. This is God's word. Thank you, Eric. Let's take a look at this text, but I want to start by reminding you of 
just where we have come in the near rear view mirror, and really by way of circling back around to the application points. And there were a few of them, but two, two weeks ago, if you recall, from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is all about God's people being moved to gather a collection for people who are very, very far away from them, even ethnically different. We made an, ap- an application point there that you'll find actually inside of your bulletin right now. So if you haven't come across this card or seen it yet, I want to remind you about this from two weeks ago and just say a couple things about it once again. Uh, and that is the worship service challenge. So over the month of Fe- February, March, and April, encouraging you to go and attend a different church. And the reason we're asking you to do that is to see the breadth and the beauty of God's people right here in a city like ours and to enter into that experience of worship in a place that may be different from what you're accustomed to for the glory of God and to, uh, to relish the chance to interact with brothers and sisters who maybe come from a different background. And the other part of that as well is as we seek to fulfill our own vision, we have people here from different nations, and for them, they're having uh, an experience that's different than those who come from this place as well. So we want you to kind of know what that's like to be what you might call culturally displaced so that you're a little more aware of some of the sacrifices, but appreciate, too, the beauty of what God is doing here in our midst. And there's an opportunity to kind of reflect on that and see how God has instructed your heart and let me know what that experience was like. That's from 2 Corinthians 8, when these people were moved to be generous with people they didn't even know, but what it did was create a bond of affection for each other. So that's sort of one of the application points from two weeks ago. Last week, our application point was to consider how we might be looking for an opportunity to supply a need. So this was all about God's people and the grace of generosity and the opportunity for the gospel to shape even our giving habits. And the challenge was to increase your giving, uh, certainly in the local church context or somewhere else, but to be on the lookout for supplying a need. And I want you to think about those two things because at the end of the message, I'm going to give you a chance to share a little bit more about that. So just be thinking of it, and there'll be an application point to discuss from this message as well. So a little bit of a heads up there. But let's take a look then at this passage for today. And the challenge really that comes from this text is the challenge to look beyond the realm of the physical only. And if you are somebody who's a follower of Christ and you've adopted what we might call a biblical worldview, you believe this is God's word and it's true and it's accurate, you have more than just an understanding of the physical world. There is a spiritual reality too. And that's given a picture, we're given a picture of that all throughout the Bible, even from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, where it says in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, it says, Everything was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered. And so God's Spirit, a non-material part of who he is, person, um, is, is a part of creating through the agency of Christ, by a spoken word, all the physical things that we see. I mean, if I say a word, it's not like something you can gather and measure in a Petri dish. And yet God spoke with the word out of 
nothing. He created all that is to be. And there's a connection between the spiritual and the physical all throughout Scripture. We know that there is, for example, uh, from Isaiah, an entity, uh, a person named Lucifer, a fallen angel, who uh, in his pride sought to take the place of God and was cast down. And now we have a spiritual picture of a battle that's happening between God, who will ultimately be victorious, and forces of evil that are woven all throughout the scriptures. And that viewpoint or that picture is something radically different than somebody who has a strictly material perspective on our world. For those of you from the West, and if you're familiar with Western history, when the Enlightenment came about, man became the measure of all things. And if it couldn't be explained in a scientific experiment, then there's reason to doubt whether it exists or not. And we have inherited in that reality some of us perspectives that say, if I can't touch it, feel it, taste it, or measure it, then it's not true. And it's not real. That is not a biblical perspective on the world. What's beautiful about the Bible, and even Paul here when he starts, is that it doesn't dismiss the reality or the validity of the physical. In fact, God became flesh, took on the form of a human, became fully human. And even after he raises from the dead, he eats fish to show that he's a physical body in the person of Christ. And here Paul is conducting uh, sort of this reality of even in the world of conflict, he's speaking, he's reasoning, he's engaging in relationships, but it's not just that. There's more happening. So if you embrace what we would call a biblical worldview today, you have to know that when you engage in conflict, whether it's with a human or otherwise, there's more than what's happening that you can, than, than what you can just measure or see. This is not a new thought for Paul back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said... Very clearly, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So you do know there's a temporary reality to the physical world, but more is happening behind the scenes. And Paul says that's something you have to really grasp if you're going to engage in this world now. So I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ today, that we don't live in just, according to Madonna, a material world. <laughs> there is more happening. And Paul is not leaving us without a, a sense of what that means or how we engage in it. And since that's true, we also believe that we have a real enemy. The Bible gives us a picture of Satan being like a, a, a lion seeking to devour, looking for an opportune time and he has uh, others who are doing his bidding and his work too, and that can become overwhelming. But Christian, let me remind you that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So if you end up feeling like you're, you can't do anything and you're horrified, then call on the name of Jesus. He's the ultimate victor. But be aware, as C.S. Lewis says, that there's two errors. One is to give the devil too much power, and the other is to completely ignore that he exists altogether. If you have a biblical perspective, you can't make either of those conclusions. Let's see it through the right grid. So, obviously, Paul here is talking about warfare. He's talking about battle. And then the question becomes, 
are you, Christian, fighting the right battle the right way with the right tools? And we're going to look at some of those today. Now, it stands to reason if you're engaged in some sort of warfare of any sort, you want the best people on your team. You want the best equipment around. And I've told this story, uh, I know, at least one time before, but either you won't remember or you weren't here. Um, I don't know how many of you have played paintball before, uh, but, you know, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's, it's great. And it, uh, it's something that I, I, I enjoyed doing. And, and actually, when I was part of a, a youth, I was a youth leader, and we got the, everybody together, and we went out at our former church to play paintball. We were dividing into teams. And one of the people who came along with us is a former state trooper, uh, Uncle Jim, some of you may know. Uh, Jim, we called him Uncle Jim, and he was a marksman as well. I guess he got high high marks for his service, and when they do those tests and that kind of thing too. And when we were signing up and dividing into teams, uh, the person who was there, I said something along the lines of, "Hey, this guy is a state trooper formally." So he said, "Well, then he divided us into opposite teams," and he said, "Hey," and this, this is Uncle Jim. He said, "Uncle Jim, here's the best weapon." that we have available. A lot of these things, apparently, when they aim, they go sideways or something. But he gave Uncle Jim the best weapon. (laughs) This marksman, who is a state trooper, on the other team, that doesn't seem fair at all. I should be the one getting the weapon. I need the most help. But no, Uncle Jim got it. And of course, he decimated all of us, (laughs) as you might expect the case to be. Um, that doesn't seem very fair. Now, if you're engaged in warfare, my guess is you want the best people, you want the right weapons, you want everything going right for you. And Paul is saying, I'm giving you some equipping for what that looks like. He's done it elsewhere, as we'll see too. But the question from this text that for us to explore is, are you fighting the right battles the right way with the right equipment? So let's just look at that. Just a little bit. And the very first thing that he talks about is the right posture. Paul, in these opening verses, says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. So there were some enemies in the church of Paul, of people who wanted to be considered super apostles, were threatened by his authority, and were doubting whether or not they should even listen to him. And you saw later that some people are saying, Oh, you're a real tough guy when you're writing letters. But then when we see you face to face, you cower. So he's got conflict here. And now conflict is universal, whether you're a follower of Christ or not. And Paul is saying, for him, this is how God has led him to approach those conflict areas. And the first thing is, he's gentle about it. Now, Paul isn't saying he's just not going to stand up for what is right or true. We know that's not the case. But the posture of his heart The intent and the starting point is gentleness. It's not hostility. It's not seeking to make somebody less than who they are. It's not trying to tear down this person who's made in God's image. He is saying that before the Lord, his intent, his posture as he enters into this conflict is gentleness and meekness. And so from the beginning, he's not coming at it in a way to cut others down, but to have the attitude of Christ. And then we see in the next few verses that he talks about the right weapons, the right enemies, and the right targets. Look at verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage world as the world does. Again, acknowledging we live in the world, 
but we're going to fight a little bit differently when it comes to engaging in the battles that are happening around us as well. If there is no distinction in our approach as followers of Christ to these things, then we're clearly not doing it right. Because he says we don't engage in these battles in the same way that people who don't know Christ engage in these battles. And part of that comes out immediately as well in verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Some of you know the the book of Ephesians chapter 6. In 10 through 20, Paul talks about the armor of God. And Ephesians is another place he spent a lot of time. And I thought this was just kind of a cool picture of all that armor of God that you're probably familiar with. He talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and your, the belt uh, there of, of truth and your feet are shod or clothed with the gospel of peace. And then you have the shield of faith for those fiery darts coming at you as well. And then the one offensive weapon, which is the sword of the spirit. And you could unpack each one of those, but just visually you can see the whole body's covered. And so many of these things are defensive as well. There's one offensive weapon, as people have pointed out. We see Jesus using this when he's tempted by Satan in the desert. He's, he's sharing God's word right back to him. And But it's being twisted. You see, Satan knows God's word very well. He believes it, too. Maybe even more than you do, which is what terrifies him. And so he knows how to leverage that and twist it. And this is part of the hard work of saying, even if I'm taking something from God's word, am I understanding it properly? Because it can be misused. That's why we need community, and not just our community, but thousands of years before of people who've done the hard work of saying, how has God revealed himself and what does that look like now, but then applying it in our context. There's some hard work behind there, but notice here how well protected this person is. This is a picture of a Roman soldier in the context of the day who's ready for battle. And those weapons are a little bit different than what the world might put on there. I wonder what it would look like if anyone's ever tried to talk about the armor of man on the other side. What would we put there in that place? You know, the shield of defensiveness and the helmet of scientific rationalism and the breastplate of emotional sensitivity. I, I, I don't know. I'm just making it up as I go along. So we could spend some time unpacking each one of those, of course. But Paul is saying that you have a different arsenal, not only in terms of weaponry, but defensiveness. So you need to filter things through that grid and arm yourself in such a way that it is just different. There is a distinctiveness to the way that you are engaging in these realities. These weapons, apparently, that we fight with, not just weapons of the world, but they actually have power to demolish strongholds. If you read many commentaries on this, there's a picture of siege warfare where there's strongholds that are overcome and you siege. You know, you go against the walls and they crumble as well. Divine strongholds, if you're using this weaponry, Uncle Jim is great, but not that awesome. Last time I checked, he didn't demolish any divine strongholds. You know, he just tagged some person who doesn't even know how to hold a gun. But you, Christian, 
if you're using this armor, can lay siege even in that realm to divine strongholds. This is siege warfare. And one of the um, commentators that I was reading, uh, uh, actually a, a fellow pastor down in Florida, suggests some sample strongholds that you are able to demolish as you take up this armor of God and engage in this kind of battle. Uh, and of course, in typical kind of pastor way, is a bunch of eyes here too, but like incoherence. He's saying a stronghold might be what's preventing somebody from seeing the truth of the gospel. They just don't understand it. Or perhaps there's implausibility. It just doesn't seem like it's possible or true. Irrelevance doesn't apply to you. I mean, this is the gospel message that Paul's talking about that these people in context are rejecting, but so do others around you. What is the stronghold preventing people from seeing the light of the gospel? He's talked about that earlier, too, that there's the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. So that's a stronghold. And we're laying siege in some spiritual realm to those strongholds, and they can be overcome as we take up the armor of God. And by the way, I meant to say that at the end of that, in Ephesians 6, he says, I'm praying in the Spirit on all occasions. So all that weaponry is something that has to be undergirded with prayer all the time. And, and by the way, I was thinking, you know, here's, here's something practical. What do you do with all this? I feel like so far it's just kind of out there a little bit too. But one, one thing might be, if, you're, if you know you're going into some, some level of conflict, even within the home or in a place of employment or as a student or something, and you're going there and you're aware of it, why not take some time to pray in the Spirit in advance and say, Lord, help me arm myself in such a way that my, this conversation is informed by the reality of a spiritual dimension. So you might say, for example, and maybe you're having a business meeting and there'll be conflict. How are you going to be different than everybody else around the table if you're taking up God's weapon? You might even just pray, Lord, help me as I hear a thought to be able to process that in a way that is looking for an opportunity to shed peace instead of sow discord. Or if somebody misunderstands me so that I can clarify without being hostile and cutting them down to do it with gentleness and meekness instead. And there's so many opportunities and you get this picture in, in the Bible of some contracted prayer, but really quick ones as well, like Nehemiah just said, okay, Emergency meeting, emergency prayer, God help me. <laughs> That's fighting differently. And framing and couching a response that looks at it as an opportunity to demonstrate the realities of the gospel instead of demolish somebody who's in front of you. There's other strongholds he recommends, he says here, like intolerance. You know, the gospel is seen as something that's unyielding and hateful or inconsistent hypocrisy in the church, or just plain inconvenient. I don't want to change. And he says, take these prayers and this helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the, the reality that the gospel is true into all of your interactions and let it shape, even in the hardest of conflicts, the way that you respond and the way you move forward. That's kind of big picture stuff here. Um, verse 5, having the right enemies and targets, argu arguments, pre pretenses, opinions, set up against the knowledge of God. 
So for those of you who are in the world of academics and you read philosophy and ideology, this is kind of getting to that, that there are big ideas set up against God. And part of what you're doing is fighting against those. And that seems kind of grand. And we know, probably many of you, how, how powerful ideas are. There is no God. It's a pretty powerful concept. And you can live your life that way. That's wrong from a biblical perspective. And we fight against those. And there's people who've done great work in the area of apologetics as well, trying to not just prove that there is a God, but legitimize the reality of how that shapes everything and how these other opportunities or worldviews don't live up to what God has revealed. You can read people like Nancy Piercy or Alvin Plantica and Plantica and a whole bunch of other people, but probably most of you don't live in that space on a daily basis. You're just trying to put food on the table, get the kids out the door, and survive. Um, so be aware that there's fights there, but two, there are very, very personal individual ones as well. And there are opportunities for you to do hard work in this arena. For example, as we go on, it says, set up, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That's in verse 5. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Or another uh, translation says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Make your thoughts obedient to him in the gospel instead of you being obedient to your thoughts. Let me give you an example of this because there's, there's a lot here and I think you can do your own work. But take a moment in the week ahead or even just in the next few minutes or as soon as you leave, when you have a thought, and there's so many thoughts that we have, Paul is saying if you want to do the hard work of fighting the right battles the right way. Take that thought, this is the image I have anyway, and hold it captive for a little bit. Take it hostage. Look at that thought. And examine that thought through the lens of the gospel. If you have a thought, and, and most of us aren't sitting here doing the hard work of this, but, and I've just done one here, like, I'm only accepted if. I'm only accepted if, fill in the blank. And usually you don't know that you're feeling this until I'm only accepted if I do well in school, you know, if I get straight A's or something like that. You don't know that's how you feel until you get a B. Uh, or I'm only accepted if um, I make a certain amount of income by my wife or whatever the case may be. Hold that thought captive and look at it and just examine it and make it obedient to Christ. So say, is that really true? Is it true that I'm only accepted if I am a great student? It may, be, it may be true that God's given you a great brain and mind and you want to do as, as, as well as you can, but when you get that B or even that F, does that mean you're worthless now? Does the gospel say you only matter to God and to others and you only have value if you're perfect on your, on your report card? I would argue the exact opposite <laughs> is true. In fact, if you're perfect, then you're Jesus, and you don't need the gospel. <laughs> so to what extent, then, when you do not raise up to your own expectations, are you able to apply the gospel and say, okay, I name it, I'm disappointed, but this does not define who I am at the most essential level. And I, I can guarantee that 
if you start filtering and understanding the gospel, this isn't just something done like that. This takes a lifetime of experience. We call it maturity, right? Paul is saying to these people right from the beginning of Corinthians, you guys are like tiny little toddlers. You don't know how to think right about life. Let me help you. And eventually you might get to maturity. This is a part of what he's talking about. Take those thoughts and hold them captive to the gospel. And if you don't know how to do it, have somebody who has been there and done that come alongside you and say, no, your value's not attached to fill in the blank. And we know that may vary from culture to culture, but we know that Christ is above all that and that he enters into wherever you are and he is your true source of value. He's your true source of contentment, not these other things. And when you start believing these lies, who, by the way, who's the father of lies? Satan. Who's your daddy? Satan. You believe lies? You want to look like your father in heaven, not like Satan. So believe what is true. And you probably don't realize how much what you believe affects your behavior until you take a moment to evaluate it and say, I'm not believing what's right. That's part of the helmet of salvation, guarding your thoughts and the breastplate of righteousness. Where is your confidence in in your success? No, it's only in Christ. That's it. And that's Paul's end game as well. In fact, he starts talking about that in the next few verses You've got this right posture and right weapons, right enemies, right targets, and even the right confidence. It's in Christ. He says that you're only looking on the surface of things. And then he starts talking about where your real confidence is. If anyone's confident he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. And he really starts talking about some personality stuff here. People are taking aim at him. And saying, look, you're one way when you're with us. You're a different way here. I mean, that's, that's identity stuff. You're a fraud. You're pretending to be something you're not. It's, that cuts pretty deep. He invested a ton of time in these people, poured himself out for them. And what he's getting back from some of them is, you're just in it for yourself and you don't really care and we're better than you are. And how does he respond? Saying, my confidence is in Christ. My core identity is not wrapped up in what you say, even though that's really not true, but rather in who I am in Christ. You say you're confident in him, so am I. I mean, these are fundamental realities. And so if it's true there's a a spiritual, what we call spiritual warfare going on, it seems to me that in our sinful nature, and certainly even an active enemy might want to attack this kind of basic thing that says, you're not as great as you think you are. You're not as good as that person over there. See the comparison he's talking about here too? You start comparing yourself with others and, and, and maybe you're trying to do it in a way that you think is healthy but pretty much starts creeping in. I'm not, this, why aren't there more people here? Why, you know, what? You start comparing all of a sudden, Satan gets a little foothold and you start looking at what you don't have instead of what you do. And you start murmuring and complaining and getting bitter and sowing discord. That's spiritual warfare. And so we have to remind ourselves, no, my confidence is in Christ. In fact, this is what he's called me to. This is my ministry. And that's okay. It may look different. Look at the final verses here too. He starts saying, we don't classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. And previously it said, this is our field. 
We're just doing what God has called us to do. So the audience, the right audience, ultimately, is God. He's the one who's commending us. He ends by saying in verse 18, it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. God is his audience. I know that for athletes in action, right, it's audience of one. You just got one part, you're, you're performing, as it were, on the field of competition, not for the applause of man, but for the approval of God. That's who I want to commend me. Just hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not from those people, but from the one who gave me breath and life, who gave me the talents that I possess. And my scope of sphere of influence and capacity to influence or do the work God's called me to is different than yours. And that's okay. That's the way he's designed it. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, we're a body. Some of you feel like armpits. <laughs> or, or maybe a tiny little pinky toe. And, and some of you maybe feel like you're mouthpieces. And you're, out, you're up front and everything. Every single part matters. There is no, no part of the body that isn't significant. In fact, what would we do if we didn't have armpits. I, mean, I don't entirely know, but I just know that obviously they have a purpose and they matter. Every, every part matters. There's this beautiful communal image all throughout the book of Corinthians and you have your field of work. You have your family. I don't know your family. You have your place of employment. You have your friends. You have your community and God has called you in that sphere, to be salt and light and to engage in warfare. Not the kind that aims to cut others down, but the kind that seeks to build up. That's what Paul's saying he's about. But there's not a lot of building up unless you're identifying these spiritual realities and engaged in them. And you know what's hard about this conversation is spiritual things are hard to measure. I mean, it's easy to measure what's seen. It's hard to measure sometimes what's unseen. But the Bible says it's just as real. And you may not get the full glimpse of it now, but there will be a time, as we said last week, when it's all made clear. And I, I want to encourage you, don't give up. You know, we've talked a little bit about praying in the Spirit on all occasions. I love that, that picture of prayer, of the, the widow who keeps coming back and asking for justice to an unjust judge. And over and over, and the whole reason Jesus tells that story is don't give up. Just keep praying. It matters. Something's happening. You may not be able to see it. In fact, you might breathe your last and not see it until God explains everything in heaven. Don't give up. And sometimes he gives us glimpses of that, and that's a tremendous source of encouragement. So are you fighting the right battles in, in the right way? I mean, he's given us kind of the posture and the weapons, enemies, targets, where our confidence is and what our audience is as well. And really, this kind of message is, could have unpacked so much more. But what I, what I want to challenge you to do is to think about, in particular, maybe one sort of takeaway. And I'm going to give you a chance to think about these three things for a moment. That third one, what's a thought you can take captive? Either one, maybe if you look back on your life and you think, I'm believing that lie over and over again. Not just what the thought is, but what's true? How does the gospel actually inform how you should be thinking about this? 
And let's take that captive. Instead of it controlling you, you can control it with Christ in the gospel. And I'm, I'm going to give you a chance to think just for a moment about that. I'm going to do something terribly horrifying to some of you, but that's okay. I'm going to give you a chance to talk about that with the person next to you or around in a small group of people. One of the, the benefits, if you're like, this is terrifying, I'm not going to partake, get in part of a bigger group and let other people talk <laughs> about it too. It's okay. But I want you to think, um, I just want to make sure that we don't, that we're doing what we say, you know, that we don't forget about these things. So you can share one of three things if you've been here the last few weeks. I'd love for you to share with the person next to you or around you, which church are you planning to attend and when? Or what church did you attend, if you did? Or second, did you have an opportunity to supply a need? Did you, did you think about that last week if you were here and did you have a chance? But third, each one of you has been here today. What is a thought that you can take captive? Try to identify something that you're believing that's not true. And make that obedient and, and pray that you can take that thought captive to Christ as well. So very practical uh, application. And Joe, would you mind tickling the ivories for just a little bit? Um, giving people a chance to think. So just a couple minutes. You got to think about this. And I'm going to give you a few minutes to just whisper next to you or be rambunctious if that's your way of doing things too with others around you. Uh, just to try to give some application to this. Okay, some of you are already sharing, that's great. Just keep doing it. <laughs> if you're contemplating, great. Share with somebody around you an answer to one of these three questions.
Okay. Jay, I'm going to use this, this mic now. All right. So what I'd, what I'd like to do is just kind of give you a, a chance to share a sample, if you have one, uh, of, of kind of what, what came out of that as well. Just on the, on the question number three, what's a, a thought that you can take captive and how does the gospel inform that? So we were talking. I thought that was a great one. Do you want to get us kicked off? Don't have to, but people here, people here probably would want that. Is this up high enough? It feels like it's really low. So just a chance to share some brief feedback. What were the thoughts that you had that you identified, and how does the gospel apply? How much time do you have? Because I have a lot. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, the one that came to my mind was a lie that I believe a lot, which is nothing's ever going to change in some certain situations. It Like nothing will ever, ever change, which is funny because I tell people, Nothing ever stays the same. Have hope. Like every day, God's doing something different. So I think it's just reminding myself that he's always working, even if I can't see it. That's the truth I have to tell myself. Okay, anybody else? And I think this is helpful to hear other people are struggling with the same things, and then how does the gospel replace that? Anybody think in those terms or have something they want to share around that? What were you talking about? <laughs> okay, Kara. Yeah, you can just, yeah, sure. Go ahead, Sam. Thanks. Yeah. So, yeah, unhealth. He's working behind the scenes. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Angel. Any others? Yeah, C and then Kirsten. Now we got it going. So the lie is only I can make my parents happy. Okay. And that's what makes you a good daughter. If you make them happy. That's a lot of pressure, see. <laughs> How does the gospel speak to that? Okay, I'm worthy in the eyes of Christ, and that's what matters. Kirsten. Oh, okay. So we're opening it up to number two or one also. That's good. <laughs> Supplying a need. 
It's good. And, and taking advantage of it. I'll, t- I'll tell you something that seems kind of silly. Um, across the street from us, our neighbor, his uh, trash can lacks a wheel. And every single week, it's, the, it's just thrown on the ground. And it's one of these big trash cans. And I keep saying, I got to get that guy a new cra- trash can. I got to get that guy a new trash And I've even told him, I'm going to buy you a new trash can. Well, today on the way to church, I realized he got himself a new trash can. And I feel like I missed my opportunity. So don't let it pass you up. Even something as simple as that. Any other quick, quick inputs or something? Hopefully you get the idea kind of behind the, the way that... And I think the challenge then is on that personal level to be aware of your thoughts and be able to identify those and then learn how to take the gospel and replace it with what's true. Uh, because... Otherwise, we're just, we're not looking like, um, uh, here, we're not fighting the battles in the right way. So let's, let's stand and sing the doxology. And-